0: hopefully you've had an opportunity to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be reading out of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 today. Uh, A lot of times when I preach, I like to tell a lot of stories, and as I was preparing and going through this passage, uh, I wasn't having a lot of inspiration story-wise. But I was inspired by God's word. I was, I was looking at it. I was just, I was coming up, I mean, just verses were flooding my mind. And, and so I just kind of want to prepare you. This is going to probably be less of like the preachy side of things for me and a little bit more on the, on the teachy side of things. And uh, so uh, hopefully uh, Eunice and I and the family are planning to go down to Georgia for some vacation time and spend some time with my brothers and my sister. So uh, that might give me a little more inspiration from stories to tell here going forward in the future. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5. We're going to read it together here. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and thank you for being a good God. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. We thank you, God, that while we were sinners, you died for us. God, we thank you for offering us salvation, that you have Uh, you have called us, you have justified us, you are going to glorify us, you offer us eternal life. God, I pray that we will be able to to bask in that truth this morning, that we will be able to relish that, uh, that that will give us joy, that that will give us hope, and will just enliven us and passion us, Lord, light our spirits on fire to serve you by loving others. We pray that you are glorified in and through all that we do today, in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the leading stories over the last four years, ever since 2016, was the Russian interference in the election. Uh, you know, how Russia was deliberately and methodically, how they were trying to disrupt our elections and undermine our democracy and so division within our country. I personally thought it was kind of humorous how... How like, surprised people were in being like, Russia is doing this, this to us? How could they be doing that? Me growing up in the 80s, and some of you are older than me you know, probably have a little different perspective. We're just like, is this all they're doing, is using Facebook and other places to undermine elections and sow discord? Because growing up in the 80s and 90s, I remember names very vividly growing up, names like Aldrich Ames or Robert Hansen. Some of you who are a little bit older might remember Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. All people, all American citizens born in America who betrayed America were FBI, CIA agents working for the government. They sold secrets to Russia for millions. And the result of that was that many Americans were killed or undermined and friends of America, America as well. And so Russia has been playing this game for years And I fully suspect that they will continue to play this game and continue to do whatever they can to divide us and weaken our nation. Although right now they might be looking at us and saying, you're doing a pretty good job on yourselves, you guys. Keep going. Keep up with the good work. My intent, though, is not to make a political statement here. My intent is to help us to kind of encapsulate and envision what this this passage is talking about. The passage we're talking about here in 1 Timothy 4 is about demonic espionage subterfuge, and Satan trying to confuse and befuddle and make the church ineffective from the inside. Uh, there's a difference between you know uh, people and ways someone might try to steal your money, perhaps. If you're walking down, in, you know, down a, a dark alleyway, someone might come up to you with a gun and, and point it at you and say, give me all your money. That's a very direct threat, and you are immediately giving that money to them. You are immediately being robbed. That is very obvious and apparent. That is one of the techniques some people use. But sometimes thieves are a little bit more subtle. And that's what I think Satan is doing and what Paul is warning us of in this passage. Someone else who might want to steal your money might come in and become your friend and might earn your trust and might build a relationship with you. And then in that process, before you know it, you might not even know what's going on. Before you know it, your money's gone in both in both scenarios the end result is the same you've been stolen from you've been robbed you've been injured or harmed but it's just about the the technique and so paul is warning us there's a lot of a lot of the obvious techniques especially in persecuted country and persecuted countries where satan is coming with a head on approach you know with that gun to the head kind of alleyway mugging kind of thing but in this passage it's a little more subtle in how satan is coming in and inf- infiltrating the church from the inside out and trying to undermine what god is doing the parable of the wheat and the weeds is a great parable some of you uh, might be familiar with it some not Uh, it's big brother parable right before it the parable of the sower and the seeds gets a lot of the the attention but this uh, the parable of the uh, wheat and the weeds is matthew in matthew 13 24 through 29 and it tells us about what Satan is trying to do to this field that God is planting. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed seeds among the wheat, and left. And when the plant sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up, the servants asked. No, he said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bottles to burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. So this is what Paul, this, this parable is essentially what Paul is talking about is happening in the church in Ephesus and warning Timothy about uh, he is saying, he's saying to Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus and fight against these, the weeds, that, this demonically based disruption and disinformation campaign that Satan is trying to wage within the church. 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4 gives us this directive that Paul is giving to Timothy. He says, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine." or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And uh, these promote empty speculation. Empty speculation. Speculation is is when you you have a theory that is based based on a lack of clear evidence. Uh, Speculations are kind of inherently empty, but these are empty speculations. And what they serve to do is muddy the waters. It creates a fog of war. It makes the mission unclear. It makes the direction that you are supposed to be moving uh, very unclear and debatable. And like Dietrich Bonhoeffer likes to say, he says, when you make God's will and his expressed will as stated in his word debatable, the one thing that does is allows us to disobey it. We no longer have to obey. Make it debatable and you can do whatever you want. And that is what Satan is trying to do with these genealogies and with these uh, myths and all these other things. Make it debatable, and then God's people aren't obeying the clear, the clear directive that God has given to us, his plan, which operates by faith. Now, the broader message of 1 Timothy is like uh, in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul tells Timothy to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we're going to see that played out even as we talk through this passage here. And he expounds throughout the book of 1 Timothy on that. That's kind of the main Uh, The main theme, the the mega theme throughout the book. He talks about how uh, that's fleshed out within the context of the local church, uh, what godliness looks like within the church context, how it applies, uh, giving instructions on prayers, roles of women, uh, the qualifications for deacons and elders, instructions for ministry, and it goes on and on. So that's the mega theme, but within that we see these little pockets right at the beginning and in the middle and at the end where Paul keeps coming back to the problem of these false teachers, of Satan and his attempt at undermining the church. And so those are peppered in all throughout here. And that's where we're starting today, is in the middle section where Paul is addressing the false teachers. And he starts off in chapter four, verse one, saying, the spirit expressly says, the spirit expressly says, we have to step back from that and say, well, How is he expressly saying this? We don't know exactly. What could Paul be referring to? He could be referring to a few different things. Uh, Paul is an apostle, and God has spoken directly through his Spirit in and through Paul. That could be how the Spirit has expressly spoken what he's about to say. It could have been from previous times where uh, the Spirit has talked to Paul, whether it's in the book of Acts, Acts 20, 29, or 2 Thessalonians 2. So those are a couple of examples that God could have been speaking to Paul or the Spirit could have expressly stated. Or it could have been other Old Testament prophecies talking about God's people falling away. Or it could have been Jesus' own prophecies of apostasy in Mark 13. Uh, we don't know if he's spe- speaking specifically about any one of these. I like to think that is this is a combination of all of them. The Spirit has expressly stated, is clearly stating that this is happening and this is going on. There's is, there is no question about it. And it's, I think, true throughout Scripture. We are warned of this fact. So it says, the Spirit expressly says in latter times. When we talk about latter times, we think about end times, a time far into the future. You know, although that date could be approaching. We think about, you know, not necessarily in the here and now. But when Paul is talking about latter times, he's talking about the apostasy, he's recognizing that what he's talking about in future times is also existing within the church right now in Ephesus in real time. He mentions it in the very first chapter. The stuff that he's talking about of people walking away, falling away from God, from from the truth, he's already talked about in chapter 1 that is already happening. People have walked away. They have turned away from love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith people have already walked away from that and so when he's saying latter times it's not just in the future it is the present it is the whole period between Jesus's uh, resurrection from the dead and his second coming that is what's being referred to in latter times and that's important for us because we got to realize this is not just a future warning this is this is a warning uh, and a caution for us in the here and now This is is what Satan is trying to do. He's planting weeds. Every generation, God is planting, planting wheat. And he's going to have a harvest. But in every generation, Satan is planting his weeds. So continuing on, it says in verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that some will depart. Some will fall away, renounce, abandon, desert. They will depart from the faith. The term from the faith is usually with the article in these pastoral letters, it's used to refer to the full body of revealed Christian truth. So it encapsulates all of Scripture, all of what God has told us, all of truth. And it's, So it's broader than just salvation, but it also includes salvation within this. And so in this very first verse, we're left with this phrase that is really hard for us to deal with, uh, especially on the first reading. It says, the Spirit expressly says, some will depart from the faith. And that makes it sound really easy. And, you know, if you're just listening to this, it makes it sound like somebody can lose their salvation. Someone can lose their salvation. One of the things that Satan tries to do often is for every doctrine that, that God has given us, Satan tries to warp and manipulate it in such a way that it undermines it. Remember, make it debatable, and we no longer have to obey. Make it debatable, and it no longer provides the assurance of faith and hope of salvation. And it no longer provides that perseverance, you know, to the end, and provides us with the the courage to stand and persevere in the midst of persecution. Take that away, and you undermine everything. And so... I think that's one of the things that Satan is using, possibly even this verse, to detract that hope and assurance that we have through Jesus Christ of our salvation. And so I want, to be, I want to be really clear that as we talk through this, that I don't think this passage is necessarily intended to talk about this topic. But I think this topic is something that has been inserted to this because, again, I think it's one of those things Satan has tried to use to undermine people's faith. And so from, a, from an exegetical perspective, this is probably somewhat of a no-no because you're, you're not talking expressly what this passage is talking about. But from, from a cultural context situation, we need to address this and say, what is he talking about? Can people lose their salvation? And so that's, that's kind of the crux of what we're going to be talking about this morning here. Can someone lose their salvation? And I want to say before we even start is that Uh, there's a huge caution that we have to just mention here. When we start talking about can someone lose their salvation, it's really easy for us to stop pointing fingers at each other, especially when we're talking about within the church, and that's not the application for today. I want to be very clear. That is not our role from this passage is to start trying to pinpoint those who have fallen away from the faith. Um, There are a lot of people in Scripture who we know are righteous, who we know have faith, have faith in in God, and we're righteous people. But we only know that because Scripture has expressly told that. And if we looked at a little tiny piece of these stories of these men or women's lives, we might easily question whether they have walked away from the faith and lost their salvation, so to speak. And so because we didn't have all the, if we don't have all the pieces, it's, we can't even say, even if we were able of saying with having all the pieces, uh, that's not our role. That's God's role, not our role to say. And uh, so we're, we're out there. We're out there planting, like God has said. We're out there planting seeds, and God is the one who, who uh, you know, separates the harvest from the and, the, and the weeds there. And so we've got to be very cautious that we are not, at, after talking through this, um, inspired to be judgmental or to inspired to go and call people out on this. So um, we, we're going to be talking a little bit more about what this passage doesn't say, and then we'll get to what it does say. So to the question, can a believer lose their salvation? And I have to say that I believe Scripture clearly teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. And there's lots of verses that I'm going to read through you, with you here. And I told you, this is going to be more like a teaching sermon and less like a preaching sermon, because this is just God's truth which I be, believe is, is more powerful than anything else that we can state. And so I pray that this will um, cut to the heart of things and, and make what happens in salvation very clear for us. So starting off in Romans 8, 29 through 30, uh, it gives us the process of salvation. The process of salvation, it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Ephesians 1, 4, 1 4 tells us that when God predestined us, For salvation, he did this before the foundations of the earth. Before the earth was even founded, God had this this plan, his will in place that this would happen. And so he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And it goes on to say, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If I was to cut my hands and take a bunch of sand in my hands from one container and move it to another container, then take that and move it to another container, then take that and move it to another container, you would probably assume that within that process I would lose a little bit of sand each each time. But that is not what is happening in this passage with God when we are in his hands. It says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called he also justified. We see a complete transference of each stage of those people from one to the other. And it's not some of those who were who were called were justified and some of those were justified were glorified. We see a complete, complete transference from beginning to the end of that God accomplish his good plan and purpose of salvation within his people from beginning to end. We can be assured of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any was in in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That is a, a truth to grapple with. The old has passed away. It means it is dead. Christ has the power of resurrection. Satan does not. The old man has passed. It's good and dead. It's not coming back to life again. It says, and see, the new has come. Yes, we struggle with the flesh, as Paul alludes to, but those fleshly desires, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. But the old has passed away. 1 John 5, through 12 is another great passage to affirm us in the, the assurance of our salvation and faith. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. So if we have the Son, which is the essence of salvation, we have the Son, we have eternal life, and that eternal life begins when we have the Son. It cannot be eternal life if you have it and then you don't have it. That's not eternal. That defeats the whole purpose of eternalness. So we can be assured that this is eternal life that God has given his people. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, another great passage. It says, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because God is faithful. You were called by him. So you're not saved and you're not, you're not saved by your own power and you're not even continuing in your own power. It says that, uh, that he will strengthen you to the end because, not because you are faithful but because God is faithful and you were called by him. That is the foundation of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 is kind of a mirror of that same passage we just read. And it says, now it is God who strengthened us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. But get this, in verse 22, it says, he also put his seal on us and has given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. The spirit in our lives is a down payment. What is a down payment? A down payment is a guarantee of what is to come. A guarantee of what is to come. God has given us the guarantee of his spirit, that down payment. And then finally, Philippians one six: I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will carry it on. So the real question is, who does your salvation, sanctification, and glorification depend upon? You or God? How would you answer that question? That's the real crux of things. Who does it depend upon? And I think reading through these verses and many more besides these, we have to come a right way and say that our salvation, sanctification, glorification is all so dependent on God. If you did it, you could lose it. If God did it, who can separate us from his love? Like Romans 8:38 through 39 says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this doctrine. It's beautiful, it's inspiring, it gives us assurance. You know, it's just all kinds of awesomeness wrapped up within this. But as with any good doctrine, what Satan does is tries to use false teachers to undermine what God is saying and what God is doing. We see this multiple times when Paul is talking to the churches and he's, he's telling them about some like solid theological truths. And then he has to clarify really quick because he doesn't want to give... Uh, place to false teachers or satan to come and undermine what he just said some of the examples of that is when paul says in your in in christ we are free he talks about freedom we are free but then he quickly has to say but don't use your freedom as an excuse to go and do evil he's got to be like very cautious like there's there's you know be careful with this truth because if you're not careful with it, you can go and take it and misapply it in a way that shows that you never had the truth to begin with. He says it again. You know another case where he says, uh, you know, he's talking about how, uh, whenever in our flesh as Christians we fail, and we sin, and it's like God's grace is amazing and it covers those sins. His forgiveness is greater. God's grace is greater. And so people were saying, oh, maybe we can take God's grace. Or maybe we can, since it's great, and since our sin accentuates God's grace and His forgiveness, maybe we should sin more. And Paul's like, no, guys, you can't do that. That's not the way it works. If you do that, it shows you don't grasp the truth of what we're talking about with salvation. Do not sin so that grace may abound more. And so we have that same principle here. We've got a doctrinal truth that we cannot lose our salvation. That is like a sure foundation, but that does not mean we can go and live our lives any way we can, or any way, I'm sorry, any way that we want. What that means is that when we are saved, that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives to bring forth spiritual fruit out of our lives. It has a plan and purpose to bring him glory. And so we got to be careful not to allow this truth to uh, encourage us to become complacent or lackadaisical. So can people lose their salvation? Hopefully everybody in your mind or out loud, you can say, no, you cannot lose your salvation. Can, they look like, can people look like they have it and not? And the answer to that is yes. There are a lot of people that are going to look like they have salvation, even within the church walls here. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 uh, expresses this very clearly. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So is this enough to just intellectually assent to that God has sent his son Jesus to die for my sins and I want to be forgiven? Is that enough for salvation? It's like, yes, that truth is a foundation to purchase our salvation, but the guarantee of our salvation is revealed in that we are, we are fulfilling the will of our Father in heaven. We are transformed. We are new creations. We are no longer uh, giving in to the old man. And so uh, so there's a lot of people who, 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 you know, are saying, you know, Lord, Lord, but they're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. It says on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, do we, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we drive out demons? Uh, didn't we do many miracles? And then he will announce to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I think a lot of times we like to think maybe maybe it was like a dating relationship where maybe God was like, yeah, I knew you, but then I didn't know you. You know, and kind of had this little back and forth, like on and off again kind of relationship with God. And it's like that's not the way it works with salvation. God says, I never knew you. You can't. This isn't something that we can pretend. This isn't something we dabble with. This isn't a relationship like a dating relationship. Where we're kind of like hanging out for a while, not hanging out, and then we're hanging out a while and that sort of thing. He's like, this is an all or nothing thing, all or nothing. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So a lot of people are going to look like they had salvation, and God is going to turn them away and say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, we see a lot of these seeds growing up, you know, we see the, the seeds uh, growing, growing. You know, this, this seed has actually been planted, is in kind of some version of soil, whether it's rocky or has thorns or in good soil. We see the growing up. But it's not just the growing that is the sign of salvation. It is that, that after the growing, it produces fruit. That is what sets that plant apart from being, being a true plant that is blessed by God, a tr- you know, that is ripe for harvest. And so that's the idea here in the parable of the sower is that it is the fruit, the, the spirit-driven fruit that sets up apart from the others. And like Paul says to Timothy, it's love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That is what drives the fruit of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.5, real quick, uh, talks about how those hold to the form of godliness but deny its power. And 1 John 2.19, last one, it says, They went out from us, but were not of us. They went out so it would become plain. They were not of us. And so you can't lose your salvation. But there are a lot of people who look like they are saved, and they are not saved. That broad road that leads to destruction is not composed of just people who claim to be atheists. It is littered and has a lot of people who intellectually have assented to the lordship of God and of the doctrine of the scripture, but have not taken those relationally into their lives to the point that it bears fruit within them. So chapter 4, verse 1, coming back to it, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This is another reason why I look at these people and say, I don't think who he's talking to are Christians because who are they devoted to? They're devoted to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This word devoted is a present active participle. That is hard for me being a Southerner to even say. It's a present active participle, which means it emphasizes continual action. When they are devoted, they are continually doing this. They are continually devoted to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But God, God's people, on the other hand, are devoted to and sealed by the Spirit of God. Second Corinthians uh, 1. And what are they devoted to? His Word. And so we've got this. We were very clear that who Paul is talking to are, are not Christians, but people, the weeds within the church that Satan is planting to undermine what God is doing and create a fog of war to keep us from clearly focusing on what God has presented in Scripture, which is His mission for His church to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, transitioning a little bit, the next verses start uh, to transition from the people in the church who are being led astray and departing from the faith to the teachers, to the false teachers that paved the way to their departure. And it's interesting because a lot of the same terminology that is used of the people have fallen away is used to describe these false teachers as well. And it says, I think that's another clue that they are, that neither were saved. But it says in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Through the insincerity of liars, they knew the truth, but they suppressed it, like what Romans 1 is talking about those who knew the truth. There's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an agnostic. God has made it evident to us all, and it takes an active suppression of God's truth, like taking a ball in in the swimming pool and trying to hold it underwater. That is what it actively takes in each one of our lives to suppress the truth. God does not condemn anyone to eternal judgment for not knowing. He condemns us for a clear rejection, a suppression of the truth, and these false teachers are a case in point of what's happening. They are insincere liars. They know what they're saying is lies, and they're just doing this for all kinds of different motivations, but they are suppressing the truth, and this is in direct contrast to what Paul has called Timothy to do, He says, what do you need to do? We've got the insincerity of these lying, false teachers over here, but he says, the goal of my instruction for you is sincerity and faith, a direct contrast between those two. And then he says, whose consciences are seared. This is taken, the the word that's used here is is, uh, taken from, um, like the illustration of, of the slaves and the brand that they would use on the slaves to mark them as slaves. And so what this is talking to is they have the brand of Satan on their lives, essentially. That they are slaves to their sins. And again, this is in direct contrast to what Paul says. I want you to have a sincere, I want you to have a love that operates out of sincere faith, Timothy. And he says, I want you to have a, a, a faith that operates out of a good conscience, Timothy. But here we see these false teachers operating out of a seared conscience in their lives. These teachers are described through the rest of 1 Timothy. Um, you know, th- There's just two examples here that describes these false teachers, but 1 Timothy, uh, throughout the book, it has, it's riddled with a whole lot of examples of, or things that it describes them as. It says, they claim to be teachers but have no clue. They make confident assertions about what they do not understand. They have seared consciences. They're insincere. They're liars, hypocrites, conceited, morbid interest in controversial Questions And disputes about words. They cause constant friction and have false knowledge. They think that godliness is the way to material gain. Does that sound familiar in the American church at all? They think that godliness is the way to material gain. And they have gone astray from the faith. So, their false teachings, what were they teaching exactly? And we don't have time to go into this today. It's kind of a whole sermon in itself, I think. But they were teaching in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, they forbade marriage. And Paul just addressed this a little bit. He doesn't address it right now because he kind of already did this when he was talking about the qualifications of the deacons and the overseers. He looked at having a good marriage and home life was a qualification for them. And so he didn't really take a lot of time right here to address that. But he also said, and require abstinence abstinence from foods. That was another one of the false teachings. They just seem funny, don't they? You just look at it and it's like, how could that lead people astray? How could that undermine their mission? How could something seemingly so simple just totally distract people? It's like, you know, even when he was talking about earlier that he was using genealogies, I was like, good grief, how desperate Satan must be to use genealogies to distract God's people, to, to, to get us off mission. But then I was thinking, maybe that's how desperate we are to argue about something so we don't have to obey the clear teaching of God's word on our lives. If we make it debatable, we don't have to obey And I think the things, these things that he's talking about are like they seem silly and so trite, but it really reveals the our hearts and the 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 extent that we will go to, the arguments that we will have in an attempt to deny God in our lives. And if we are willing to do that, I think it is appropriate for us at that time to ask the question, are we saved? We are not meant to ask that for each other and point fingers. But I think as a result of this passage, we would be doing it injustice if we come away from it and we've been playing these games with these myths and these genealogies and we're, we're talking about and arguing through all these things and we come away from it and, and we're not obeying God's word, we're not bearing fruit in our lives. The question is, are we wheat or are we weeds? What are we? So Paul is talking about these two issues here. They forbade marriage, and they required abstinence from foods. Just kind of closing things up here, because we don't have time to talk about that aspect and their, their false teachings in depth. I was just kind of asking myself, what is it that Paul is why is he warning Timothy of all these things? What is he really trying to communicate to us today? And as soon as I wrote that down, I wrote down, he teaches us three things. And I want you to know I wrote down, God. You know, Paul is teaching us three things, but I wrote down five. And that's because I feel like everything we do when we're preaching has to be three, but I still don't wrote down five. One is that the Spirit expressly says that this will happen. Paul wants us to know that this is not something that is is like a surprise to God or should be a surprise to us. I can't tell you how often it is that we hear people, and you probably know, whether it's Christian singers or pastors or other people who have fallen away from the faith. And it's hard not to let that shake you. I had a mentor back in Arizona, a mentor that was very, uh, uh, just very influential in my life spiritually. And he had gone to Moody Bible Institute, and he brought me with him and some other guys to Promise Keepers. And I remember that my first year at Moody Bible Institute, I got word that this man had inappropriate relations with, uh, with someone and was in jail. And that shook me. That hurt. And, and I think Paul's wanting to caution us and saying that, guys, don't let that shake you. This is, this is wheat and weeds, and we've got to step back. And we we got to remember that we have assurance of our faith. We have hope in that salvation that God has given to us. So expect it to happen. Don't be shaken. Second thing is that our war is not against flesh and blood. These are deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that are into the church. And when it's a spiritual battle, we don't deal with it in physical ways. Uh, we, we put on the full armor of God, and we, we pray, and we pray. The third thing that it does is it reminds us of our responsibility. Our responsibility on how we combat false teachers. And it's not to go out and do God's job of sifting and judging. But what God has called us to and what he is calling Timothy to throughout this book of 1 Timothy is to know and teach the truth. That is not unique command for just Timothy. Timothy. That is not a unique command for just deacons or overseers to know and to teach the truth. That is a command, I believe, that is true for all believers, to know and teach the truth. Hebrews 5.11 says, We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand, because by this time you ought to be teachers. By this time you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. How do we combat false teachers? By us knowing God's word and being able to teach it. And let me just ask you this. If you knew you had to get up here and preach or teach up here to people next week, how would that affect the time that you spend in God's word this week? I hope you would think substantially substantially. But that is what God has called every single one of us to, to know and to teach the truth. That is what combats Satan's espionage attempts within the church. It's not relying on one person, as good as Pastor Tom is at knowing and teaching the truth. The church cannot stand and function as God has designed it to if he is the only one doing that. We have to know and teach the truth and we have to do it with the right heart like Paul says to Timothy in 1:5 we need to the goal of our instruction is to love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith the fourth reason is that God's truth is it reminds us of, the truth reminds us of God's goodness and that keeps us going and my fifth thing that I thought about that the reason that Paul wrote this to Timothy verses 1 through 5 is to set up Pastor Tom to preach on the rest of the chapter that contrasts the good teachers and the good overseers to uh, these false teachers that found in the first part of chapter 4.